How are you today? Good. I'm glad. Uh, we'll be having community lunch today. Hope that there will be a great time where we can ask one another how are you and find out how things have been going in one another's life. Those who have not met me, my name is Kenneth. and hope to meet up with you over lunch today. Would you join me in prayer as we look at God's Word together? Father, we thank you for the Word of eternal life. Father, we pray that this morning you will make your Word our rule, your Spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. For the sake of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, in the last three weeks, in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, Paul has been addressing matters concerning sexuality. He reminded the Christians of the identity as God's holy temple. He instructed them to flee from sexual immorality and glorify God in their bodies. The next three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, concern idolatry, specifically about eating food that's offered to idols. Chapter 8, verse 10 mentions eating in an idol's temple. Chapter 10, verse 21 involves participating in the table of the demons. 10.25 concerns eating idol food which is sold in the meat market. 10.27 involves eating idol food in an unbeliever's home. So over the next four weeks here in SMAC, we will be thinking through together with Paul this theme on idolatry. Today, we'll be focusing on chapter 8 itself. Do you remember about three weeks back, when we studied chapter 5, I told you the key question to unlock 1 Corinthians. Anyone remember? Who are you? Who are you as an individual and who are you as a corporate body, the church? For your understanding of who you are shapes how you live, how you behave, how you talk, and even sometimes how you walk. In chapter 8, not only have the Corinthians failed to understand who they are, now they failed to understand who a fellow brother or sister is. As a result, they ended arguing about food. The title of today's sermon is Remember Who He Is and Care. To begin, let's ask the question, what was the situation back in Corinth that Paul is addressing here? Well, seemingly, some Christians were saying something along these lines. Come on, guys, don't be silly, okay? We know our theology, and you should know as well. These things here, they are nothing but food. Come on, idols don't exist. So food offered to idols is just food. So when we get invited to weddings, to dinners, to birthday parties that's held in idol temples, why can't we just go ahead and eat? They are just food. Well, that seems to be the gist of the issue. Such is the mindset of the group of Christians 
that Paul is trying to address in this chapter. What do you think? Is there anything wrong with such a mindset? Can you not identify with the angle that these Christians are coming from? Let us take a look at what Paul has to say. Verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. The basis for this group of Christians' standpoint was their knowledge. That is, as they insist on their rights to eat food offered to idols, they are claiming that they are standing on their theology. They are standing on their understanding of who God is and therefore what food is. So, Paul, very quickly within the first three verses of this section, already began to shake this foundation. He does so by polemically attacking their confidence in their knowledge. Step by step, Paul is going to display their pride in their knowledge. Step one, Paul says, Yes, you possess knowledge. But so what if you possess knowledge? Verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. What good is this knowledge of yours when it is puffing you up in arrogance? It is not building up yourself or others in spiritual maturity. It is love that builds up. Secondly, Paul said, Yes, you have knowledge. But don't assume that your knowledge is comprehensive. Don't imagine that your knowledge is somehow so insightful that you know something, that you know it all, because you don't. Verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. And thirdly, Paul said, Yes, you have knowledge, but again, so what? Verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. What does he mean? Well, based on Paul's argument so far, which involves love, you and I would have expected him to say, well, because knowledge alone is not enough, it is the one who loves God who will truly know God. Right? So if you want to truly know God, you must love God, which you now lack. That would flow better with the argument, wouldn't it? But he didn't say that. He said, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So what does he mean? Paul is saying, well, yes, you have knowledge. But so what? Whatever knowledge of God that you have, it is irrelevant. So what if you claim to know so much about God? The knowledge that really counts is not your knowledge of God. It is God's knowledge of you. What really matters is not whether you know God, but is whether you are known by God. It is whether you are regarded by God as one of his adopted sons. 
So stop being arrogant about your knowledge. Well, at this point, we must remember that Paul is being polemical here in order to attack the Corinthians' pride in their knowledge. Paul is not downplaying universally all kinds of knowledge of God. In fact, in the same letter, in chapter 1, verse 4, Paul prayed, in every way, the Corinthians were enriched in Christ in all speech and all knowledge. Knowledge of God matters. Here in chapter 10, Paul is just trying to deflate their pride and promote humility in them. For as we read on, we will find out the harm that their pride is causing the church. As we read on, remember also that this is the group of Christians that Paul is addressing. Paul showed no concern to change the weak, but he showed every concern to change the so-called knowers. But what exactly is wrong with these knowers? Let's find out. Well, after having smashed their arrogance in their knowledge, Paul went on to argue in greater detail. Like before, he began by agreeing with them. Then he moved on to show why he also disagreed. So verse 4. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Paul began by agreeing with these arrogant Corinthians. He said, yes, you are right that an idol has no real existence. Yes, you are right that there is no God but one. That is our God. And well done, by the way, that you can even quote the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. So, you are right to conclude that all these gods and all these lords, that the unbelievers are worshipping and offering the food, they are just so-called gods when in fact they are nothing at all. For indeed, as Christians, we know there is only one God who is our Father, and there is only one Lord who is our Lord Jesus Christ. But, verse 7, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through formal association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. What does he mean? Not all possess this knowledge. Well, one, he could be saying, not all Christians have fully grasped the knowledge he just mentioned above. That is, some Christians, because of their lifelong worship of idols, they have not yet come to the full conviction that an idol has no real existence. 
Yes, they have turned away from worshipping idols to worship the true and living God. But somehow they still regard an idol in some ways real. Or secondly, he could be saying, Yes, though all Christians, by definition of being a Christian, should have fully grasped that they know God but one, and that an idol has no, exist- has no real existence. However, some Christians, because of the lifelong worship of idols, still somehow strongly associate eating the food that has been ordered, uh, offered to idols with their formal experience as an idolater. So, they can't eat such food without perceiving themselves committing an idolatry. Either way, we are certain of what Paul is concerned. Paul is concerned that this Christian's conscience, being weak, is defiled. What does that mean? Conscience is defiled. We must understand that these bunch of Christians, after they have turned away from worshipping idols to worshipping the true and living God, they are under a lot, a lot of social pressure. Back in the first century Corinth, everyone, every single one, all the unbelieving friends, neighbours and colleagues and relatives, everyone eat in idol temple, in weddings, in birthdays, in celebrations. The temple, its worship, its sacrifices permeated every aspect of life. If you don't participate in effect, it means that you have to separate yourself from the rest of society. So these Christians have to stand very firm in their faith to say, no, I'm not like the rest of the world. I've been set apart by Christ. I'm a distinct people. I don't worship any other gods but the true and living God, so I won't eat in an idol's temple as I used to. They have to stand very firm in order to hold on to that conviction. So when Paul says that their conscience is defiled, he's saying, it came to a point when these Christians caved in under pressure. They say, well, it's just way too hard to stand firm as a Christian. The pressure is just too great. I know this is idolatry. I know I'm sinning. But guess what? Let's just forget about it. These other Christians are doing it. I'll just go along. By the example of some Christians, these other Christians are led to consciously cave in and participate in an activity they consciously consider idolatrous. So in summary, indirectly Paul is warning and asking these proud Christians, do you really want to defile the conscience of these Christians? Leading these Christians to commit adultery, are you sure that is what you want to do? Well, Paul is not finished with his warning. Verse 8, Food will not command us to God. We are not worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. Again, Paul says, yes, you are right. Food is just food. 
Food will not bring us closer to God. Whether we eat it or whether we abstain from it, it makes no difference to our standing before God. But, verse 9, But, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? You can see that Paul is repeating his previous point. But at the same time, he's escalating it to a new level of seriousness and gravity. Here he talks about becoming a stumbling block. What does he mean? A stumbling block may seem something that is small to us, a Lego block that we trip and fall a little. But in the New Testament, Paul uses it to describe an obstacle that causes or keeps someone from finding their way to ultimate salvation. It's an obstacle that keeps someone away from finding ultimate salvation. When someone stumbles, he's actually falling into idolatry. That is, he's turning from worshipping the true God to worshipping idols. It is that serious. That is why Paul was so stern in saying, take care, be careful. In fact, that is the very same phrase our Lord Jesus used in the Gospel. Matthew 24.4 Take care that no one leads you astray. These are very, they are very serious consequences. Paul is warning and asking them again, Are you sure you want to become a stumbling block, leading these Christians to fall into idolatry? Is that what you want to do? And then, in verse 11, his warning reached a climax. Verse 11, and so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. By their knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. That is a very strong word. Biblically, destroy means to cause to perish, to be lost from the kingdom of God. It involves the ultimate ruin of a person. It effectively means you are pushing him back into the spiritual darkness and therefore into eternal condemnation. Paul is saying, yes, based on on your knowledge, you have all the right to go and eat whatever you want in the idol's temple. But remember what it could potentially do. The weak person could be destroyed. Destroyed. You get it? Spare a thought for that, would you? And not only that, Remember who this person is. Who is this person who could potentially be destroyed? He is the brother 
for whom Christ died. The brother whose life caused Christ his own life and God his son. Paul is saying, yes, based on your knowledge, your so-called knowledge, you have all the right to eat whatever you want, wherever you want. But remember though, when you do that, you are like a juggler. You know a juggler? There is a possibility that what you are juggling may drop. So as you eat the food that is offered to idols, there is a possibility that they may stumble, you may stumble someone. More importantly, remember what is it that you are juggling in your hands. You are not juggling with 50 cent apples or $2 tennis balls. You are juggling with something much, much more of higher value. You are playing with brothers for whom Christ died. Are you sure you want to play with that? Don't you think your brothers are too precious to be treated so carelessly? And he adds that these arrogant Christians who by their actions lead the brother to commit adultery, they are in fact sinning against Christ himself. Such a statement might have come to a shock to these Corinthians. For perhaps they have never viewed their brother through the lenses of the cross. They have never made the connection between the person who is sitting next to them in church to the cross. Yes, they, have made, they may have made the link between themselves and the cross, that they themselves are someone for whom Christ died, that they themselves are someone who is now in Christ, but they have never thought of the brother next to them in the same way. As someone who is not just someone, as someone who is not just a face on Facebook, but someone who is in Christ. If they have never seen their brother for who he really is, they would never have thought that their flippant treatment of their brother is a flippant treatment towards Christ himself. Because the Apostle Paul see his brother, he see his sister, for who they really are, for how precious they really are to God, he concludes by saying, verse 12, Therefore, if food makes your brother stumble, if food makes your, your brother stumble, I will never, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Look at the extent of what, of where Paul goes. Meat is like abalone and bird nest to the Chinese or caviar. It is the most luxurious and expensive food in that time. And yet, Paul said, if food makes my brother stumble, I don't care what it is. I will never in my life eat meat. The title of today's sermon is Remember Who He Is. Remember Who He Is and Care. 
The strong challenge I got from this passage this week is, do I care? Am I sensitive about my brothers and my sisters' spiritual well-being? Do I even bother? Well, with the, heart, with the help of God's Spirit, today we must repent, isn't it? We must repent and resolve to think about each other in this way. That is, as precious brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. As precious brothers and sisters who we must commit to care for one another's spiritual health. For it is the only right, it is only right to feel this way about each other. It is only right to hold each other in our hearts. For we are those for whom Christ died. So whatever we do, if there is any hint at all, we might stumble someone. If there is any slight chance at all, don't even think about it. He is precious. He is the precious brother for whom Christ died. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are sorry for the times we have failed to be sensitive to our brothers and sisters' spiritual health, their spiritual well-being. We are sorry for the flippant ways, our careless ways we have treated one another. Father, in and of ourselves, it is impossible. Left to our own sinful instinct, our natural disposition, we care first and foremost only for ourselves. Father, we thank you that unlike us, who have failed to be a good brother or good sisters to those around us, we thank you for our perfect brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, who so cared for our spiritual well-being that he came from heaven to earth to show the way, that he left the Father's throne to become man. He so cared for our spiritual well-being that he died on the cross for us. Father, we thank you for the perfect brother. We thank you for the gospel. Father, please help us now by your Holy Spirit Please change us to be more and more like Jesus, who look not into his own interests, but the interests of others. Help us, Lord, to be servants as we follow the servant king. And in his name we pray. Amen.